going to try that again. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good to be with you, uh, whether here in person or at home. And uh, this morning, uh, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, like we read. It's a new section in the book. Uh, and we have this poem here in verses 1 through 8 that are undoubtedly uh, the most well-known uh, verses uh, in this entire book. Uh, people, um, upon reading this poem, you're going to naturally get that um, bird song from the 60s stuck in your head, right? The turn, turn, turn song. And some of you are too young and you have no idea what I'm talking about. And you can just go look it up today on YouTube. It exists. And uh, I am sorry, but it'll get stuck in your head for a long time. But I won't sing it for you now. I don't want to make it awkward. So, uh, But anyways, that's what most people think of when they see this poem. Um, and although pop culture has really loved this poem, it often mistakes the difficulty it mistakes the difficult but honest truth that this poem is actually confronting us with. Uh, it may be a poem uh, and that helps lighten the blow, if you will, but we come face to face with the fact uh, that we are not in control. That we are not in control. And don't you love being in control, right? I, I love feeling in control. I love being able to kind of determine what I feel and how I feel and when I want to feel it or uh, what I want to have happen and when I want it to have happen. Um, I love being in control. I'm sure you might resonate with that as well. But I think uh, perhaps even scarier than losing control uh, is finding out that you never had it in the first place. Um, I was kind of thinking this week about a time in 2005. Uh, I was living in Southern California. I had a mutual kind of friend in the church I was a part of, and he was a former Air Force pilot. And so he had his pilot's license, and one day he goes, Josh, you know, you want to go flying with me? And flying was like one of the things I was most afraid of, but I said, sure, for some reason. And I went flying with him, and we went to this random airport hangar in the middle of nowhere, uh, hopped on this two-seater plane, prop plane, and, and we take off, and I'm feeling extremely nervous about it, but trying to keep my cool. This is like a, an Air Force, you know, military guy. And uh, we get up, and all of a sudden I realize, like, how safe everything felt. But it felt safe because I, I felt in control. I could see everything. You know, normally when in the back of the plane, you have no idea what's going on. I could see everything. I could see the controls. I could see that when he moved the steering wheel or whatever you probably call it, like, you know, the, the plane would react to that, you know? And so there's this real sense that, man, we're in control. And so we would fly around and a few thousand feet up and we go land and take off again. And he would even say, Josh, you can, you can fly. And, and so I had my own controls and I could feel the control that I had in flying this plane. It was a great feeling. And, and we, you know, after a certain amount of time, we, we landed, I took off, I was driving home and it hit me in that moment that I felt like I was in control, but uh, this dreadful fear came over me because I realized, man, what would have happened if my friend had this like medical emergency? you know, while we're up in this plane in the sky. And all of a sudden, I would feel this sense of great control, and that would just be gone. All of a sudden, how am I going to land this plane? I have no idea how to fly this thing, you know? But in the moment, it felt fine. It felt great. But as I was driving away, that thought came over me that I never actually had control to begin with. And all it would take is one emergency to reveal that. I, I think that's what Solomon's delivering uh, in this passage for us this morning that it, it, the, the idea of being in control is something we long for, but uh, actually we, we've never really had it to begin with. We've never had it to begin with. He takes an honest look at the dynamics of time and eternity, and surprisingly, what he finds is not the vanity or vapor that you and I have come to expect from the book. The word doesn't even occur here. Rather, we catch another glimpse of life from above the sun. 
from God's perspective. And that helps us see that God is working out his sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful yet mysterious to us kind of way. Mysterious to us kind of way. So what we have here is is Solomon continuing to seek to find some meaningful way for you and I to spend our lives here and now. And the objects that he slides under the microscope, if you will, are time and eternity. What effect do they have on us actually being able to live a meaningful life? And we'll see the answer to that is a lot. Um, So the way this is kind of broken down is verses 1 through 9, he's kind of showing you the oppressive tyranny of time and how we do not control it, really. So we see the tyranny of time in verses 1 through 9. That's the poem. And then in verses 10 through 11, he shows you the one who actually controls time, the one who controls time. And then lastly, in verses 12 through 15, he shows us what we should then do with the time that we have, what we should do with the time that we have. So let's look at the beginning there, the tyranny of time in verses 1 through Nine. He begins this section not with a question, but with a thesis, if you will. What does he say? For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, right? Seasons come and go, and he uses this word seasons uh, intentionally. We're, we're supposed to be thinking here of like winter and spring and summer and autumn, um, you know, that comes in the fall, and, and how one of those uh, seasons comes, and you can't make it come more fast. I can't, I, I wish spring would be here tomorrow, right, or today, but I can't, I have no control over that, right? And when summer, you know, is ending, you want it to linger, you know, you don't want it to end. We have no control. It comes and goes when it's ready to come and go. And to expand on what he means, he then pens this poem. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's been planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Uh, this, this poem mentions the word time 28 times. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, 28 times. It sounds like uh, basically it's meant to feel like this clock that keeps ticking and ticking. You know, whatever happens, happens, and there's nothing you and I can really do about it. But notice how he lists these 14 pairs of life events. Each pair contains a set of opposites. Do you see it, right? Birth and death, weeping and laughing. And this is showing us that there is an order to the rhythms of life. To all of our lives, there is an order to our life. And so Solomon starts looking at the beginning and ending of life. In verse 2, we see that human beings and even vegetation have a beginning and an ending. You see that. Verse 3, he looks at the destruction and the repair of both bodies and buildings. Right, verse 4, he shows us how we respond to life's various situations. Right, We weep, we, we, we laugh, we mourn, and we dance. Verse 5, it, it's harder to understand, but it's speaking generally of joining and separating, bringing together and, and casting away. And then concerning friendship or even perhaps intimacy, there's a time to, to embrace and a time to Refrain from embracing, right? I know we all read that as just, yeah, COVID, right? We're not supposed to embrace now. So 
uh, forever. That's probably how I'll see that. But um, verse 6 describes how we treat our possessions. A time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. And then verse 7, it's kind of like verse 4. It shows us our responses to life's tragedies. There's a time to tear, which is getting at the idea of mourning. Because people, when they mourn, they would tear their clothes. But then there's a time to sow, right? To put them back together and to, to move forward in life. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Many of us, we all need to learn that better, right? Verse 8 describes the fundamental emotions of the human life. A time to love, a time to hate, along with the social effects of that. A time for war, a time for peace. As these are the rhythms of life in the world as we know it. We are meant to understand here that there are seasons of good seasons of joyful life experiences, and there are seasons of unwanted and undesired pain and frustration. And it all just happens to us, right? We, we, we can't alter much of it at all. It just happens, which is why he gives that conclusion in verse 9, which is the same question he basically has asked to start the book back in chapter 1, verse 3. He reaches back and pulls that question out again. And he says, what gain have the workers from their toil? Well, what's the expected answer? Nothing. Right? Did you notice how one time cancels out another? Right? A time to be born, a time to die. There's nothing left. Right? A time to plant flowers in the spring and a time you got to dig them up. Right? Nothing changed. What gain have the workers from their toil? Absolutely nothing. That's what he says. So here's the big question about the poem. Is this poem simply describing what is? Or is it encouraging us to figure out what should be and when it should be and to live according to that? On the one hand, I think we would do well uh, to keep in step with the rhythms and patterns of life. So if you want to plant a garden this year, I wouldn't start in the fall, okay? Like that just probably wouldn't go very well for you. If you're standing by the bedside of a loved one who's sick and passing away, that's not a time for comedy hour, right? Um, I would do well to know the proper time for keeping things and when to throw them away, personally. You can ask my family that. I often just throw things away and later everyone goes looking for it and I go, oh, I just... I thought it was clutter, you know, but it was something really important to somebody, apparently. So I would do well to learn that rhythm in life, you know, to have the wisdom to discern that. There is, there's a certain cadence to life, and it does help us to live accordingly to that cadence, but that's not what uh, the defined outcome of this poem is supposed to be for us. As we are constantly being told that to, to live a better life uh, are more, or have more desirable outcomes that we need to more effectively manage our time. That's what we're being told to do all the time. Uh, There are a lot of time management books. There are, um, you know, minimalism books. There are planners that you can buy, and these things are not bad at all. I use many of them, but we have this sense within us that if I could just manage my time better, if I could just get on top of my schedule, right, then I will be more productive, I will be more effective, and things in my life will be better, right? We often have this thought, but we need to stop and consider where this tyranny of time actually comes from. Because this poem isn't telling you that you need to manage your time better. It it isn't even telling you to embrace the moment when it's there. It's raising this question, who crafted these rhythms? Who, Who wrote the score that creation is dancing to? 
right? Who, who, who's directing the play that we're acting out? There may be appropriate responses to different life situations, but what, what should we do and how should we see those situations in and of themselves? Which one of us had any say in the day of our birth? Right? I mean, nobody consulted me about when I was born. Okay? I probably would have chose 1910, England, somewhere, I don't know, probably. But no one consulted me on that. Right? No one is going to consult me about when it's time to go. Right? We're not at liberty to rearrange the calendar or shuffle the seasons to our liking. There's a, there's a proper time for weeping and laughing, for war and peace. But we really don't have a say in when those times come. There's a pattern at play in this world, and we're not calling the shots. And so comes the shocking realization from the poem, we are not in control. Uh, there's a scholar named Derek Kidner who says, looked at it this way, the repetition of a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that begins to feel oppressive. The purpose of the list is to show us what is, right? Not what should you do, but what is, and that every matter under heaven has a proper time and a fitting place, but that we have no control over when that time and place is. So what do you do with that? Right? You could do what Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day wrote about in the hit song from 1997. It was about 23 years ago. That song, A Time of Your Life. Great song, by the way. But he says, time grabs you by the wrist, directs you where to go. So what should you do? Oh, take the photographs and still frames in your mind, hang it on a shelf in good health and good time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you have the time of your life. Just take some photographs, right? Enjoy it. Time seems to be a tyrant. It drags you by the wrist, but is there anyone who controls time? And if so, would that be a good thing? Well, it depends on how good that person is. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 11, the one who actually controls time. Read with me in verse 10, what does it say? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So who set the times? Right, The sovereign God has set the times. Notice how God begins just to show up here now. It was to say the business that the author is referring to in verse 10 is all the bookends of life in the poem. That's the business that he's talking about, right? So he says all the stuff in the poem is the business that God has given to humanity. So God gives the very thing that seems uncontrolled and unavoidable to us, right? But before you think of God as like a masochistic, mean, tyrant king, notice what he's doing with all the business. Verse 11, What is he doing? He's made it everything beautiful in its time. Everything is supposed to make your eye wander back up to verse 1, right? His big thesis. For everything, there is a season. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything is beautiful, right? Even though it has a season. Do you see, instead of concluding that all is vanity, the clouds part once more, and we are catching a glimpse from above, from God's vantage point. In verses 11 and actually down in 14 are the heart of this text. And so here is this big overarching truth of the passage, that God is the sovereign ruler 
of time and the seasons that you and I bounce to and fro in. He makes the case implicitly and explicitly. Look in verses 1 through 8 in the poem. It's implicit, right? God is not mentioned there, but there is what? There's order, and you, you can't get out of it. So that's kind of teasing out this question, then, who ordered the times? Well, that's explicitly answered in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful. These are, these are, this is absolute, explicit language. This is not hyperbole. And, and so we're, we, we struggle with this a little bit because we are told all the time in relationships, especially marriage, right, to never use hyperbole. There's words we never use, right? You never say never, and you never say always, right? We know this, right? You, you're going to get in trouble if you do that, no matter who it is you're arguing with, right? You never take out the trash, you know? You always, you know, take that side, or, you know, I don't want to get into it right now, but whatever. So we, we don't do this, right? Because why? It's untrue. Because all you got to do is take the trash out one time. All you have to do is wash the dishes one time. Right? And so we speak in these sort of hyperbolic, exaggerating ways that are untrue. But with God, there's no hyperbole. Right? There's no exaggeration. Everything else in our passage rests on this truth that literally everything is beautiful in its time. It's not random. It's not tyrannical. God makes every event beautiful meaning fitting, it's suitable in its time, it's according to his plan. But it doesn't mean that everything is intrinsically beautiful. It doesn't mean that you have to look at someone suffering and dying and say, that's beautiful. That's not beautiful. But in order, in time, God is making everything beautiful. This, this means that God has a plan so wonderful that there's no way for you and I to take it all in. God is working out his sovereign purposes in the world in a beautiful yet mysterious way. And I I say mysterious because of what we are told at the back half of verse 11. What does it say? That he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, So God has put eternity into your heart. It's in there. I don't know if you knew that. It's in there this morning. What does that mean? Well, it means that our hearts are longing for something more than what is simply here under the sun. The author is tapping into something really profound in this passage. Here is one of the great frustrations of our existence, you guys. This is why um, Solomon can even ask the question, what what do we gain from our toil? It's because he has this in his heart. We are born with a longing for permanence a deep desire to do something that's going to endure and it's going to make something that, 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 that will last beyond our lives and make a difference. To put it to you this way, it's, it's like all of us, all of humanity still has Eden running through our veins. Right? We have eternity in our hearts. Our souls instinctively yearn for a purpose life without end under this clock-ticking sun. Then this strange qualification is at the end of verse 11. What does it say? So that it cannot be found out. And this is honestly a really key theme in this book. He's put eternity into your heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So so God is, is eternal. He's made you in his image. So you have eternity in your heart. You are not God. Right? I mean, we want to look back and we want to see the whole road that we've traveled, even everybody else's roads, and we want to make sense of it all. And we look ahead and we want to see around every single bend to the very end, don't we? 
God in his nature, though, has placed within us that spiritual thirst for transcendence. And so we can seek to know the answers to the questions we have, but we cannot find it out. You and I, we're limited people. We do not know what God has done in the distant past, nor what he'll do in the far-off future or even this afternoon. We can study the past, we can contemplate the future, but we cannot find it out, and that is a good gift from God, you guys. If you don't believe me, uh, just imagine what it would have been like last March when lockdown hit and you were told, hey, no school for over a year. You would have gone crazy, right? I mean, we were all checking our watches like end of April maybe. Okay, no, dang it. Okay, May, uh, June, okay, not this year, but fall, fall for sure, right? And we cannot see out. We cannot see the beginning, right? We cannot see the end. We cannot find the future, and that is a good gift, is it not? So the image that comes to our mind really here that we should be thinking of is the image of like a tapestry. You guys know a tapestry? You you take thread and you weave it together into something like a rug that creates a beautiful image on the front side. All the threads woven together in this beautiful image on the front side, you would hang it on a wall or something like that. But on the back side, it looks like just a, a tangled mess. It looks like chaos. It looks ugly. What is that? Right? You see it from the back side, you can't make sense of the image. You see it from the front side, oh, everything comes into clear view. And so that's essentially what we're talking about here, that we cannot find it out. We see the back of the rug, but God makes everything beautiful in his time. He has the full view of the front, of what he's doing. So let me just ask you, do you deeply believe that you not being able to control time to, to not be able to understand everything, to not be able to see it from the other side of the rug, right? do you think that's a good thing? Do you think this is good for you? To be honest, you, you won't ever think that your lack of control is a good thing if you think that your wisdom and your decisions would be better than God's. So as long as you and I think my decisions, my wisdom would be best, I will never see my lack of control as a good gift from God. I never will. What do you think would make you free from your frustration then? To control the times or seasons and the like? Well, guys, only if you could see what God and his goodness and grace has done in his sovereign timing and how he's made everything beautiful in its time. Because if you doubt that he's made everything beautiful in his time, just think about what the Bible tells you God has done with that time. I think of Galatians 4 that says, but when the fullness of time had come, what did God do with his sovereignty? What did he do? It says he sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we find Jesus, the son of God, was born. And when was he born into? A time of war. There were soldiers roaming the streets. Herod had just put to death every two-year-old boy in the region. Death was the experience. Just think about that as your life experience. That would have been talked about. Like you would have been raised hearing about that in history class or something like that. That time that Herod did that thing that was unspeakable. 
Jesus and his family, they had to flee at one point. They learned what it was like to, to, to give away and, and to cast away things because what they had to do, they had to flee as refugees to Egypt, right? What they had gathered had to be cast away. A time came when they could finally return and start building again, though. He experienced that. There were times when Jesus was silent, when others really probably should have stood up for him in his defense, but they said nothing. Jesus came and he's establishing a kingdom. He's building a kingdom uh, which others sought to tear down. Because he came to tear down kingdoms that the prince of darkness had built in his lies and deception. We see there was a time when his disciples heard him speak. They felt his embrace. There was a time, though, when Jesus wouldn't feel their embrace because they would give him the cold shoulder of rejection and denial. Jesus saw people weeping. He knows that there is a time to mourn when he saw them in their diseases and their pains and their aging and their ordinary life stages. And we know that Jesus himself wept as he sat at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. There was a time to dance and to laugh. He knew what it was like to dance at a huge celebration in the Jewish community, getting a whole community together to hold hands and dance together and worship, maybe welcoming home a prodigal son or something like that. He knew what it was to plant. Jesus knew what it was to pluck up and he knows what it means to die. Paul says, at the right time, Christ died. For who? You. Right? In Christ, God, quote, in Ephesians, it says, made known the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which was set forth in Christ as a plan for when? For the fullness of time. What is he going to do? What is Jesus going to do in the fullness of that time? He's going to unite all things in him. Where? Things above the sun in heaven and things under the sun on earth. He was born to die. That's why Galatians 4, 5 finishes by saying, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children of God. As Jesus is the centerpiece of this rug, right, of God's beautiful mystery. There was a lot that didn't make sense in his life. I mean, the God of creation taking on human flesh only to be rejected and murdered by his creation. And yet God was at work in the mystery to bring about something beautiful in its time. New life, new creation, salvation. Because whatever God does endures forever, right? Therefore, we can know that Jesus' work endures forever, right? So what an encouraging truth that we are meant to look at in the changes of seasons. When things come and go, when I ping about from one event to the next and I have no control, I have something I stare at from the backside of the tapestry because I know that Jesus' work endures forever in every season. No one can add to it. No one can take away from it. He did it. It's finished. In light of that, then, that God has actually ordered time, and he's really, really beyond gracious and good in doing it. How, what should you do with your time? Right? Look at verse 12. Right? Since God is sovereign, which means he has absolute authority over time, then we can leave all of our fears in his hands. And we could follow the instructions here in 12 through 15. We have these two I perceived in our passage that he's guiding us in. So there's two things we really should be doing here then. The first is found in verses 12 through 15 or 12 through 13. What does it say? 
I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So uh, what should you do with your time? Well, be joyful and do good. That's what he says. How does that work? How can I be joyful in these bookends of life? How can I do good? especially when evil is so tempting in my life. Right? Well, there, there is joy even in the midst of vanity. How? Well, if there's a sovereign and good God at work behind every matter. We're, we're free from the anxiety, from the fear of circumstances. We can enjoy the daily routine of life then, right? You can eat, you can drink, you can work, knowing that God is working, that his good purposes will outlast, that they will endure forever. We can give ourselves to serving God and doing good, trusting him to take care of the results. I don't have to see it all. And though that is not easy and can in fact be unspeakably hard, right, we can trust God when life falls apart, when even the unthinkable stuff happens, when tragedy strikes us, not because we understand the tragedy, but because we know that God does, that he sees the whole picture from the beginning to the end. Right? And that he is both powerful enough and he's good enough to work it out according to his plan. Right? This call then to do good is an important and liberating call to you and me. It means that we are to do right, do what is good, what, is, what God would say, yes, that is good, that is right. What to do good in God's eyes, right? So in light of all we've read in Ecclesiastes, you would have to conclude based upon this verse alone that your life is not meaningless, Right, that you should do good, especially if you're doing what God says is good because whatever God does endures forever. Right, so we become kind of like um, Anna in Frozen 2, right? You know, and she's at the end of a rope. She doesn't know where I have little girls who love this movie, so I know this very well. But um, she, she doesn't know the right thing to do, and so she sings this song. Let's just do the next right thing. I'm just going to do the next right thing. I'm staring at the back of the rug. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to do the next right thing. It's kind of that idea, but I don't get to choose what's good and right. I don't do whatever I just think is the next right thing. Whatever God thinks is good and right, that's what I do. Because if I do that, and I could trust that doing good matters and has residual effects, even if I can't see it. He's called me to it. So when you begin to trust in the reality of God's sovereignty and live as it's really true and binding on your life, it actually allows you to see the beauty in the midst of what seems frustrating, you guys. I mean, none of us would deny uh, the beauty of a newborn, you know, that a time to be born. Uh, you know, the soft skin, the tiny fingers and toes, uh, the yawning and the stretching, right? It's, it's amazing, right? It's beautiful. But sure, I mean, right around the corner, there's um, the screaming and the puking and the, the diaper blowouts and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but there is a time to be born, and it's beautiful. And they live right along next to each other. You could take relational conflict. Right? There, is, there is a beauty in forgiveness. You've been forgiven. You've seen that beauty. And as you forgive others, there is a real beauty to that. Because that is imaging God. Right? But there's also that means that there's been wrongs in that relationship. And I don't go, well, that's beautiful. Right? There is a beauty, though, alongside the vanity. 
So we don't have to see every outcome. We don't have to understand every circumstance. We are being given a life of freedom and joy because we can enjoy God's gifts. We can do good, trusting in him that he makes everything beautiful in its time. He's just reminding you that you're staring at the bottom of the rug. So enjoy God and trust him. But there's even a deeper way forward. And we find it in the second I perceived in verses 14 through 15. Right, which verse 14, I'll tell you, is the key verse in this passage. In light of God's sovereignty and enduring work, how should you spend your time? What does it say? What does it say? Nothing could be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. What God or God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So what? What do I do with my time? It says, fear God. Fear God. Why has God set the times? Why do you have eternity in your heart and you cannot find it all out? Right? It's so that you would stand in awe, that you would fear God. Do you see? This is the goal of the passage. It's to convince the people reading to stand in awe before their sovereign God. Why would you write that? It's because people are not standing in awe before their sovereign God. Right? The response to the realization, guys, that we have no control over the course of life is not to despair, and it's not to try to control it all the more. It's to fear the God who does. That's our response. And by fear here, I I mean uh, reverent, knee-shaking awe that results in joyful surrender. That's what we're talking about here. There's a fear that'll drive you away from somebody, right? Because of the fear of punishment or something like that. But there's a fear that will drive you towards somebody. And that's the fear that we're talking about here. It's, It's the language of worship. He's explaining that seasons come and go and that we feel out of control. And what this often does to human beings when we are in these spots, is it generates fear in us, in other things, in other people. And when our fear of things bounces about from one thing to the next, what happens? Our anxiety rises. And so it's no mistake that over the course of this last year, over the course of this whole pandemic, that that we are seeing anxiety pretty much at an all-time high in people's lives. Why? Because we, we bounce about from one thing to the next, realizing our lack of control. Our fear skips from places of thinking about our own health or our family's health, then to maybe social movements and how we should engage with them, right? Then to politics and, and whether my candidate's going to win or not, right? Then we have our job concerns, our weekend activities that are taken from us. What's going to happen with the schools and when will we be back? We bounce from fearing one thing to the next that we can't control and we're realizing it and we long for it. So we long for a liberating truth, and here it is, you guys. Do you see it? God is great, so you don't have to be. God is in control, so you do not have to be in control. We become liberated, guys, then when we actually fear God. Right? Why would that be liberating? Well, C.S. Lewis describes this in one of his books, this idea of fearing God. He says it's, a, it's being filled with awe in which a certain way where you feel wonder, in a certain shrinking. He says, it's a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitation and our prostration before it. It is a fear that comes forth out of the love for the Lord. 
And I love, I think this is a little bit more vivid, uh, classically in his novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, we have these four kids that get lost in this new world called Narnia, and things are happening there that don't happen in their world, right? Animals are talking, they go to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house, and they're instructed about this lion figure, Aslan. Right? And so when the children discover that Aslan is a lion, they naturally have some questions about whether it's safe to meet him. And the beaver responds by saying, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. you if you thought that would drive them away, not at all. It draws them near, and that's what the fear of the Lord does. It says, in Narnia, Aslan reigns as both the sovereign Lord as well as the good and gracious king. He's not a house cat. And he's not a violent ruler. And so Peter, the oldest of the four children, responds appropriately to the unsafe yet good Aslan. He says, I'm longing to see him. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Guys, like Peter, a proper understanding of God leads us to a sense of fear of God and at the same time a longing to be near him. I'm just telling you, you're going to fear something. You're doing it right now. It might be in the back burner, but it's there. You're going to fear something. You're going to revere something. You're going to fear and worship then the idol of control. You're going to worship the idol of just trying to escape and control how you feel. You're going to fear time itself. As things go that you don't want to pass, and as things come that you don't want to come. Or, you can fear the sovereign God over time. See, the remarkable thing about God, Oswald Chambers says, is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Charles Spurgeon said, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. And Solomon, who wrote this, uh, these exact words, uh, said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Guys, there is a time to fear, and that time is today. There's always a time to fear. You're always at fear. The time is today, tomorrow, yesterday. So who are you going to fear? You're going to fear something. So fear God. How do we respond? We realize we're not in control. As we rejoice that God is. So we fear God. We worship him with an awe-struck living that displays itself with trust. I mean, how many of us look back at 2020 and we look at our world now and we want to experience a different season than we're in? Is that you? We want to be with everyone, no restrictions. We want things the way they maybe were. Right? We want the sports, we want the hangouts. I, mean, I just want to go to a concert again, right? But if God makes everything beautiful in its time, do you believe that? Then how does this season fit into that appropriateness and beauty? If everything God does endures forever, then what is God doing now that I need to be linking up with him in? If I'm called to fear him, and in response to fearing him, I enjoy the good gifts that he gives me today. 
and I do the next right thing. Right? Embrace the seasons, you guys. Not because um, just new ones will come, but don't just embrace the seasons. Let the times cause you to fear the one who is over those seasons. Let's all stand together as we pray and we go into our time of response. God, you are sovereign, good, and gracious king. God, help us to remember that us feeling out of control is what you've designed for us and to trust in you, the one who is at work in every season and every time. God, may we trust in your goodness. May we not despair, but help us to look to your son, Jesus, and to once again remember that as you order time, you've displayed the richness of your mercy within it. You've sent your son to die